it's pretty evident that our human nature, the human nature, leads towards complacency. It's easy for us to get into a place of complacency. We do this with our marriages, right? We know marriages are hard work. We know that that raising kids is hard work. Our families, all of these things, and we get in a place of complacency where we're constantly making withdrawals from one another, and pretty soon the marriage account is bankrupt. We don't we don't dedicate ourselves to continually reading and learning and and nurturing one another in the things of the Lord. We just get complacent. And the same thing is true with our homes. Many of us moved into a home, and as we moved into the home, we thought, you know what? I don't really care for this, and we're going to fix it when we move in. I don't, the landscaping stinks, and we're going to change that. The deck needs painting, we'll paint that. And you move in, you get comfortable, and the deck is, still isn't painted. The landscape still looks the same. And that thing that you didn't really like, that you were going to fix, is still there. You just get, we just get compli- complacent. Complacency, it doesn't lead to, when we get complacent, it doesn't lead to prosperity. It doesn't lead to fruitfulness. Right? Get complacent and stop mowing your lawn. See if it continues to look well taken care of and manicured. No, it goes, it, it, everything goes back into chaos, not structure. And, I mean, God made it this way. He, he made the earth. He, put, he, he created a garden just for man. And it wasn't just so he could be complacent. No, he was put in there so he could tend it. Right? So this is this is part when 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 we fall into complacency, we're literally not looking like the image of God. Ouch! Right? When when we when we become involved and engaged and and working towards the betterment of our our marriage, our home, our finances, our jobs. You know, you get you get a new job and you and and you think to yourself, well. I'm in an entry level here, but I'm going to take these classes. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to climb. This is a, this is a place that I can climb the ladder, and I, and and I won't be here in five years. But we let we become complacent, and we don't take the courses. We don't invest in ourselves. And lo and behold, 15 years later, we're still in the same position. Right. Even we can become complacent, and I know you guys, none of you guys become complacent in this area, but we can become complacent in our spiritual health and our relationship with God. Right? I'm going to read through the Bible in one year this year. I'm going to start praying. I'm going to study a certain book of the Bible or maybe a certain topic. What does the Bible say about this topic? I'm going to, these, I got these books that, from these men and women of God that are just awesome, and I'm gonna, and I and I want to, I want to get through these books this year, right? 
we, 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 I want to become more committed to God. All these, all these things, but life just happens and we get complacent and we find ourselves going backwards instead of forwards in the things of God. Even as a, a church, churches can get complacent. And I'm telling you, what we've seen over the last 15 years in America, the American churches have become complacent. They became complacent more than 15 years ago. They, they, weren't, they, weren't, they weren't prepared for September 11th when, when that tragedy happened on, on our country. They're, they, they're, not, they're not prepared for the things in culture that is, is, is just seems to be coming in like a, like a flood. Thank God the Spirit of the Lord is going to build up a standard against it. We just become complacent. We get comfortable in our routines and we become more of a social club than a, a living organism, a living body, a living spiritual house that Jesus intended to charge the gates of hell and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We get to a place where we're not reflecting what Jesus intended the church to be. So how do we stay engaged? How do we avoid um, falling into a place of careless contentment? Well, your vision. In Proverbs 29, 18, it says, Where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, but happy is the one who keeps the law. The message paraphrases it this way. It says, If people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. But when they attend to what He reveals, they are most blessed. Are we... So complacent, we're not seeing what God is doing, what God is wanting to do in, in, in our personal lives and also in our corporate, our corporate lives. See, unless we, the, the church, has a sharp intentional focus, we can easily drift into non-essentials. And this happens, this is, this is the reason all those other things that we mentioned, the marriage, the home, the finances, the, the job, our, our spiritual well-being and, and a relationship with God. You have to have a vision. You just don't automatically do things just, just, because, just because you're supposed to do them. You need, God says you need to have a vision of where you're going, what you're trying to accomplish, the, the, the end of all this, right? You don't, you don't start exercising, lifting weights, and eating good just because it's fun. No, you have a vision of what you want your body to look like. You want how your health, how you want your health to look like, how your stamina and strength to look like, right? And, and, and some, of, some of us might be putting up grandkids up on the, on the, uh, in front of the exercise machine. You want to be able to run and play and, and, and be with your grandkids. So you're willing to do the hard things because you have a vision of where you want it to be, where you want to go, right? Sorry, is this too personal? Uh, 
if we as a church are to rise to our true potential in these critical times that we find ourselves in, we must do so under the direction of Jesus and under the direction and guidance of the Holy Spirit. This is key. Because when you enter into what Jesus is, is saying, what Holy Spirit is guiding, there is a, a grace, there's an empowerment to come alongside you in those things that He's calling you to. When God gives you a vision, He already has supplied everything you need to accomplish that vision. Ain't that awesome? I mean, so, so often we, we get a vision and we say, how's this going to happen? What? That must be your vision, because if God gives you the vision, you shouldn't be saying how this is going to happen. You should say, God, what is the first step? What do I do first? What are you calling me to? Because God, when He creates something, and when He gives a vision, it's already, and in the mind of God, it's already done. But there's lots of things in the things of God that He calls us to that are, He doesn't sovereignly make them happen. He gives us the opportunity to partner with Him and walk towards that vision, that goal. You understand that? And so we we got to have a vision, and, and when we have that vision that God has given us and that Jesus is speaking and Holy Spirit is leading, there's a grace, there's an empowerment for that to be manifest in our, in our life. And as the case always is with God, His methods are not complex. The things of God are not complex. I mean, Jesus summed it up this way. If you have faith as a child. You just need faith as a child. His things aren't complex. We, we are the ones that make everything complex. His ways are easy. They're simple. He calls us to keep the main thing the main thing. The calling and the vision of the church can be summed up in three things. And we could call these, we're going to call these today the three greats. Three greats. That sounds exciting, right? The, the activities of the church cannot be based on human cleverness. It, can, it can't be based on the energy and the power and the strength of the flesh. No, we want a move of God. We want God to move in us. We want God to build His church, right? We need to, ar to um, ar arise God's way. We must not base our directives and, and priorities on things of the flesh but according to His truth. So the first grade is the great commitment. The great commitment. And honestly, right now when I say this word, commitment, you guys start thinking and you start preparing yourself for a guilt trip. To be pressured to be more committed to God. More committed to the Bible and reading Scripture. More committed to church attendance, to serve, to volunteer. Now listen to me, don't get me wrong. All those things are wonderful. They're great, right? They're not only good for the church, but they're good for you individually. It's good to serve. It's good to be connected to the body of Christ. It's good to 
allow, to minister to others and allow God to use you within the church. But, and there's nothing wrong with those things. Your commitment to God is important. Your commitment to God is important, but it's not the most important commitment. There is a commitment greater than your commitment to God. The most important commitment, the commitment that comes before all commitments, is God's commitment to us. Is God's commitment to us. Your, your commitment to God can only be as healthy and strong by it being a response to a deep-rooted understanding of God's unconditional, expansive, all-powerful commitment which He has made with us. A commitment that He continues to express towards us day after day after day after day throughout all eternity. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, he says, this is Jesus speaking, he says, this is real love. You want to know what real love is? This is what it looks like. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. You think you love your spouse? You think you love other people? You think you love the church? You think you love God? Jesus says that's not real love. Human love is not real love. Human commitment towards God is not a true commitment. Real love is God. God is love. And when you receive the love of God, it goes on in verse 19, it says, We love each other because He first loved us. We live in a world where people try to say all the time, we need to be loving. We need to love one another. Love, 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 love. But if they have not received the love of God, in their lives, it's impossible for them to truly love. You see that? You understand that? We can say love all we want. And God just say, I don't think you know the definition of that word. Love is God, and the only way we can love the world is through the love of God that we have received from Him. Jesus also said in John 15, verse 16, He says, You didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruits. It, this, is, this, is, this is such a... You guys know this scripture? But do you hear what He's saying here? The creator of the universe actually chose you. He picked you. He called you. He saved you. He pursued you. You did not pursue God. He pursued you. You, you did not get saved. He saved you. 
You you have been chosen by God. Don't get complacent in this reality. What a privilege that God has chosen me. And he says, I have chosen you. And he says that I have appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit. He has appointed you to be an eternal success. He has appointed you to be an eternal success. The the entire Christian faith rests not upon our commitment to God, but His commitment towards us. While our commitment with the Lord may fluctuate and they might flounder day after day, highs and lows, the truth is, is God's commitment towards us has never, ever, ever waved. You know, one of the things they say about seasickness, if you're out on the water and and, and up and down of the waves, they say, look at the shoreline. If you can can see land, keep your eyes on the shoreline because the shoreline never moves. It's constant. And the same thing is true in our faith. If you find yourself up and down and and sporadic and floundering, all these things, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus because He never wavers. He is the constant. He is the plumb line. Amen? In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus makes this statement to Peter. You guys know the whole backstory on this, but He says, Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. This is Jesus' commitment towards us. Commitment to the church. Jesus, he, It's an absolute commitment to build His church. He's not just seeing, well, let's see if this works out. Right? No, He said He would do it. He would build His church. He, he, he is committed to this. He is committed to the church. He is committed to us individually as individual members of His church, of His body. It was not a temporary experiment to be dropped off if the results were not to His liking. He decreed that He would build His church and He has never changed His mind. That's the commitment that God has made towards us. That's the commitment that Jesus has made towards us. That's the commitment that God has made in bringing heaven to earth is through the church. In Matthew 28, 20, He says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What a commitment. Jesus has committed that He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will will always be with you. Can you see Jesus' commitment to His church? Listen listen to how Peter explains how Jesus plans to build His church. In 1 Peter 2.5, it says, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices 
that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Every single temple, the tabernacle, the temple, the, the, the temple of Solomon, uh, the Nehemiah's temple, the, the, the t temple of Herod, all of the temples ever built were never the temple that God wanted. God never wanted any of those temples. The temple that he desired. Because what was the temple for? The temple was a place to meet with God. The temple that God desired was you. That you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God lives in you. And this is what Peter's trying to explain here. He's, expla he's explaining that each of us are living stones being built up into this, this spiritual house, this, this, this temple of God. And we are, we are to offer sacrifices in that temple. And we, we've already covered what those sacrifices are in earlier messages in the series. And notice that he's addressing both individuals and corporate, the corporate in this verse. You understand that? See, a lot of times we think, well, the church is going to do it. The pastor is going to do it. The fivefold ministry is going to do it. No, it, the church is individuals. We all are responsible in what God is trying to do in the earth. Peter told believers that they're individual living stones. And he told them that they are corporately being built into a spiritual house. I'm telling you, if, if you're not connected to a body of believers, you're just a stone out in the field. You're not being connected into a living house. You're, 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 I know, I'm a pastor and I want everybody to come to church. But the truth of the matter is, if you're not connected to a body of believers, you are not living out God's will in your life. This is God's will. That we come together corporately and become a movement within the earth. Because you can walk through a field and see individual stones here and there, here and there. They can be scattered throughout the field. They can be totally separate from each other. But if a skilled mason comes through and starts picking individual stones, and he's, he's, he's fastening them, and he's looking at them, and he's putting them together, and, and, and he's 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 using wisdom in how he lays each stone upon each stone. And he's using a type of mortar to join them together to build a beautiful house. That is what Jesus is wanting to do with each one of us. That is what the Lord does. Individual, we are living stones. Assembled together, we become a spiritual house. 
And he, do, he doesn't want, want us to remain isolated. He doesn't want us to remain separate from another. That's why we're instructed to assemble together in Hebrews 10.25 in community. We serve, we partner together, we allow Jesus to build us into this spiritual home. And that's why, that's why it was so easy during COVID for so many to stop meeting together. Because they don't, they don't see themselves as part of the spiritual house that Jesus is building. They see the church as a place that we go to get entertained. We go to have our ears tickled. We go to make ourselves feel better. I'm a good person because I went to church. No, it's so much greater. It's so much more beautiful. It's, it's, it's so much more amazing. The kingdom of God being built in the earth. And the stonemason, he makes sure he makes sure he uses strong mortar to keep the stones connected. He does he doesn't want the building falling apart. In the same way, the church needs a, the strong influence of the Holy Spirit to join us together and keep us connected in this spiritual house that the Lord is building. Understand, we, you you can build it with your own ideas, your own wisdom, your own little catchy um, plans and um, programs and all, all of these things. But it's the Holy Spirit that brings the connection and brings the body into one. The question is, it isn't that is Jesus going to build his church? We've already seen that, right? He's committed to that. Jesus is committed to build his church. So we don't have to question that. No matter what we see on the news, no matter what we see being played out on social media, no matter what we have we see of statistics that come out or anything else, we can have confidence that Jesus Christ is going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The only question that we have is will we allow him as living stones, as individual stones, as material to build his house? It's going to happen. Will it happen in our generation? I don't know. Will it happen here at Karis New Testament Church? I pray that it does. But it's up to us. Are we going to engage? Are we going to allow Him to use us in, do, in what He desires to do here and now? In Philippians 1.6, Paul says this, For I am confident. Are you confident this morning? I am confident of this very thing that he who has begun, began a good work among you will complete it by the day of Christ Jesus. Are you confident that in allowing God to use you as a living stone, are you confident that in Jesus' good work to complete everything that he has planned for your life in you? We need to be confident in these things. 
I mean, why fear? Why worry? Why have anxiety? Jesus has strong shoulders. Throw it on him. Jesus, you said, you said that we can have complete confidence in you, that you're going to complete it in me before Jesus returns. Knowing that Jesus is completely committed to us, that he is absolutely dedicated to building his church, should give us boldness. He's not going to quit halfway. Jesus is not going to, is not just the author of our faith, but he's also the finisher of our faith. See, once we embrace this truth that Jesus is entirely committed to us, that commitment is enduring, then only then are we empowered to walk in the next two greats. Yet you see this? It's, it's until we got this down that God is for us. 100%. And He has provided for us. And He has made provision. And He's going to carry it out. Then we're empowered to walk in the Great Commission. How many of you are familiar with this term? Let me see some here. Is, anybody, is there anybody that's never heard this term before? The Great Commission. Well, listen to this results. <laughs> of a survey conducted in 2019 by the Seed Company in conjunction with Barna Research Institute. When asked if they had previously heard of the Great Commission, half of U.S. churchgoers, 51%, say they do not know this term. 51%. When it, 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 it might be reassuring to assume that the other half that have heard this term would actually know what it was and where it was found in Scripture, right? But of the other, of the other 49% that said that they have heard that term before, only 17% knew where it was, what it was referring to in the Bible. Tell me, are we discipling people in the church? Or are we entertaining them? The study says the Great Commission does ring a bell for one in four, that's 25%, though they can't remember what it is. <laughs> And 6% of churchgoers are simply not sure whether they have heard the term the Great Commission before. If something is great, I would think that we should know about it. Right? If we label something great, we should know what it is. What is the Great, the great Commission? And, and, and while Jesus was training his earliest disciple, it became clear that he had plans and intentions for them and for all of us that would follow after them. For example, Jesus told them that they were salt and light in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. So he's telling the disciples that you are salt and light, and these elements are, uh, they influence the world as salt preserves. See, a lot of people don't know that, that we use salt as something to enhance flavor, right? 
And that's something that salt does, right? We should have the most flavor than anyone in the world. But in Jesus' day, it was used to, pres to preserve, to keep things from rotting. The church is put in the earth as to preserve culture and keep it from rotting. So when we are trying to embrace culture, when we're trying to be relevant to culture, we're not preserving it. We're supposed to offer the world a different culture, the kingdom culture. You understand that? And that kingdom culture, that counterculture, is what is preserving humanity. And then he talks about us being light. He talks about, and light illuminates. It illuminates. But it also disinfects. You know that? I have a teenage boy. He likes to keep his blinds closed. And it smells like teenage boy in his bedroom. You go in, you open the blinds, the light actually purifies. That's amazing. And we are the light of the world. We, we, we disinfect the, the light of Jesus in us, the light of God's word, the light of his truth. It disinfects. It illuminates. The influence that Jesus intended his disciples to have was echoed once again when he instructed them, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. See, it's not enough just to do good deeds. Our good deeds should point to our good, good Father. This was the mission that Jesus gave the church. In case you've never heard of the Great Commission, it's in all four Gospels in some way. Or that great, um, great uh, command. No. Yeah, Great Commission. I said it right. There's so many greats I'm lost already. There's only three. Difficult. So in Ma this is the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, verse 19, he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is how Mark puts it. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15, he says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. The one who has believed and has been baptized will be saved, but the one who has not believed will be condemned. These signs will accompany those that have believed. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not harm them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. And what Jesus is saying here is as you go, you don't have to worry about the devil. You don't have to worry about um, the beasts in the, in, of, of, of snakes and scorpions and anything that might, might hinder you. You don't have to worry about men poisoning you. You don't have to worry about sickness and disease. 
you go in the power of the Holy Spirit. These were Jesus' marching orders for the church, and they remain the same today. These are the signs of a believer. When, when's the last time you laid hands on, on somebody? These are the signs of a believer. John, he puts the great commission this way. He said in John 20, verse 21, he said, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And this doesn't... what. This isn't saying that we can just say, okay, we forgive the sins of the world. They're all forgiven. As a matter of fact, they are forgiven already. You don't need to even say it. Jesus died for the sins of the world. We as salt, we as light, we as image bearers, we as light bearers get to bring this truth to people and let them know that their sins are forgiven, that they have been forgiven. Hear the good news. Embrace the good news. Receive Jesus as your King and Lord. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And listen to what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Think about this. Do we really understand that the same way that the Father sent Jesus is the same way that Jesus is sending us? Jesus' mission was vital to the salvation of humanity. What would happen if Jesus decided, well, let's put it this way. What would happen if Jesus had the same attitude about him being sent as the attitude that you have about him sending you? What would that look like? What would that look like? How do we, how are we treating our heavenly assignment? And and I can just think people are thinking all the excuses. I'm too busy. I got all this stuff to do. You know what? Jesus gave you another promise. He says, "Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you." All those excuses that you have that the Gentiles are seeking after, Jesus says, will be added unto you if you keep the main thing the main thing. Luke's presentation of the Great Commission emphasizes its one word, witnesses. And, and Luke chapter 24, verse 48, he says, you are witnesses of these things. We are witnesses of something. Jesus Christ has transformed your life. Jesus Christ has, has took a heart of stone and made it a living, fleshly heart. Jesus Christ has given you new want-tos. Jesus Christ has delivered you single-handedly from the kingdom, the dominion of darkness, and has translated you into the kingdom of His dear Son. 
You are children of God. You are adopted. You have been given the Holy Spirit. You have the fruit of the Spirit in you. You have the gifts of the Spirit upon you. You're a witness to this. And then he backs it up. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Luke also wrote the book of Acts, in case you didn't know. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. God wants the world to know of His love and His saving grace, and He expects us to demonstrate that love, to demonstrate that grace, to make His gospel known. And the word for, what does gospel mean? Good news. Good news. Listen to me, if you're not, if people don't feel good after you get talking to them about Jesus, guess what? You didn't share the gospel. There's a lot of people that don't feel good after they meet a Christian. And we are not called to share anything except the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and his heart and his intentions have not changed. God is on a mission, and he has invited us, even commanded us to join him on this mission. This is Jesus' mission. This is God the Father's mission. This is the Holy Spirit's mission. He has invited us to partner with him. We are on a co-mission with God. We are in a co-mission with God. We're not doing this in our own strength. We're not doing this in our own ability. We, we are even, God is committed to this already. So if you are in that mission with him, he's committed to you. Whenever you think of the Great Commission, remember that it is an activity we are engaged in with God. We are joining him in the fulfillment of this mission. And then the last great, the great commandment. When we comprehend God's amazing commitment to us, when we accept our responsibility to fulfill the great commission, then in turn we are motivated to operate in the remarkable love of God. And that's what the great commandment is all about, is the love of God. So, so this brings us to this great commandment. So what do you think when you hear the word commandment? Many think of numerous commandments issued in the Old Testament, right? It is said that there's 613 commandments in the Old Testament. Do you know that those 613 commandments can be summed up into 10? And that's what a lot of people think about when they think of the commandments, they think of the Ten Commandments. All 613 of those commandments are amplified ways of doing the Ten. You understand that? And here's something that's even cooler. Jesus is so cool. Those Ten Commandments can be summed up into two. It can be summed up into two. In Matthew 22, verse 35, it says, One of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him, Jesus, with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, You must love the Lord your God 
with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Equally important. Think about this. Because the way that we love God is, is, is truly loving one another. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Everything in the Old Testament can be summed up in this verse. Right? So if you want to read the Old Testament, go ahead. Just read the read, read Matthew 22, 35. I got it. I understand. This was... <laughs> This summed it all up for me. Now, let's not forget something here. We do not keep these commandments to earn God's approval. We do not keep these commandments to receive salvation. We do not even keep these commandments to keep us from losing our salvation. Do you understand that? Our salvation is based on Jesus' commitment to us, not our commitment to God. We have His approval because of being the one that was able to keep it perfectly, to keep these commandments perfectly. Jesus perfectly loved God with everything that He was. And Jesus perfectly loved us with everything that God was in Him. Jesus is the finisher of the covenant. He kept it perfectly. The old covenant. And now, we that have His approval we that have received His righteousness, right? By grace and faith of Jesus, we are able to love God and love others by and through the love in which He first loved us. We talked about this already today. This is remarkable. You have the ability to love those that Get under your skin. You have an ability to love those that are unlovable by, by human power and human flesh and human emotion. You, have, you can tap into the very love of God. And, and Jesus just summarized all this, the significance of the law in these two commandments. And he said that they're both of equal importance to love God and love people. Paul made it clear in what is called the great love chapter, that, that if love is not the core motivator for all that we do, it is all for nothing. Listen to this. We, 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 we read this at weddings. I think we need to read it every anniversary. Marriage, wedding anniversary. He says, if I speak in the language of earth, and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy and I understood all of the of God's secret plans and and possessed all knowledge, and if I had 
such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. Listen to what he's saying. These are all things that the human heart secretly desires. I wish to have knowledge that no one else has. I wish to know things that no one else knows. I wish that I had supernatural powers. I, I wish that I, that I, I could do, do these things. He goes on to say, I wish that I could move mountains. And God says, none of that matters compared to the manifest presence of God's love. He says, listen to this, if I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would not have gained nothing. There is much in religion about giving everything away to show that you're spiritual. We have religions that sacrifice their bodies for their God and take innocent life in the process. Is that love? It says it's, it's that they have gained nothing. We have to look at our motives. We have to look at why we do the things that we do. We have to look at the decept, deception that is in each one of us that uses love to manipulate, to control. We, we, we use love to get something from somebody else that we truly desire. That's, that's the world's kind of love. I say this all the time about premarital classes that we do, is, is when the husband is, is picking a spouse, he is not picking somebody that he is thinking, I am going to lay my life down and do everything that I can to show her the love of God through me. I, 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 I have chosen this woman because I want to show her love. No, we choose our spouse. And this happens both male and female. We choose our spouse by how they make me feel. How I'm attracted to them. How, what they're going to do for me. How they make me look when they're on my arm and we walk around town. How, how they are going to take care of me. How they're going to provide for me. If we're honest, we use love in such an ugly way that it's not even love. It's something from the pit of hell. And we need to recognize it in our own lives. We need to recognize it in our own lives. He says, he says that it doesn't gain you nothing. There's, there's, so that means that there's great gain in doing these things with your motive actually being love, the love of God for others. 
You know, I wonder how many of us will stand before the Lord and they will receive, thinking that they're going to receive these great prizes for their labors, only to find out that the rewards were greatly reduced or entirely lost because they did the things for the praise of people or for other wrong reasons. You know, Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15. You should go read it. It says, if the works are burned up, the builder will suffer great loss, but the builder will be saved. But like someone barely escaping through a wall of flame. Now, one of the things that, that the Bible, um, fire in the Bible is talking about refining a lot. Cleansing, cleansing things, and we, we all will go through the cleansing fire. And everything that is not of God will be burnt away, and the things of God will be refined and become even more pure. Peter says that this whole earth is reserved for fire cleansing, not destruction cleansing. We, a lot of us, a lot of pastors, a lot of people, a lot of good people that think they're good, they'll tell you they're good. A lot of those people are going to go into heaven smelling like a smoker because everything's been burned up. But it says, praise God, we get to get, get in there. The builder at least gets is saved. <laughs> right? Think about these things. These were put in Scripture for a reason. And when Jesus gave the commandment to love, He also showed us how significant love would be in terms of witnessing to the world. In John chapter 13, verse 34, it says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. What? That seems impossible, doesn't it? By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you love for your love for one another. Jesus said that we are to love one another the way He loves us. He set the standard so high. It, it, how could it how, how higher could it possibly go? So how do we do this? It's only possible for us to do it if we tr to, to truly love one another through God's divine love. And this is possible because, listen to this, in Romans chapter 5, 5, it says, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you see that in keeping the two great commandments, we are dependent on God's love working through us. We, we are co-laborers with Christ even in loving one another. We are constantly dependent on Jesus. We're constantly dependent on Jesus. You cannot do it on your own. And Amanda knows that I can't do it on my own. Your spouse knows you can't do it on your own. Your co-workers, your family, your friends, your kids, they know that you can't do it on your own. But when they see Jesus in you, when they see the love of God in you, they say, God is truly in this place. Because I know that that's not you. 
The church is called to be kingdom builders. We individually are called to be kingdom builders. And this is the way that Scripture instructs us to do it. Very simple. Very simple. It's not complex. It's living out the three greats. We are to be rooted in, rooted in the great commitment, the knowledge that Jesus is 100% committed to you as you allow Him to place you as a living stone building up a spiritual house. Then through that truth, we are empowered and emboldened to be co-partners with Jesus in the Great Commission. Then through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we allow the love of God that has been poured out in us to transform the world through the power of that love. This is what believers look like. This is what believers look like. This is what the church needs to look like. We need to engage. Amen? Amen. You've been listening to a message from Karis New Testament Church. For more information or to contact us, go to www.karisntc.org. And remember, you are deeply loved, highly favored, and destined to reign in Christ Jesus.